Welcome to another selection of Inspirational Conversations, brought to you by the Historian Committee. Today's interview is with Dr. Michelle Lusardi, who was interviewed by Dana Lott, a member of the Historian Committee. Dr. Michelle Lusardi has worn many hats in her career as a researcher, associate professor, author, and board member for the Academy, just to name a few. She has authored over 40 peer-reviewed articles, has been the recipient of several honorary awards, which include the Joan Mills Award and Outstanding Educator Awards from the Academy of Geriatric Physical Therapy and the Beth K. Carlin Award and Lucy Blair Award from the American Physical Therapy Association. And she is also named a Catherine Worthingham Fellow of the American Physical Therapy Association. Dr. Lusardi has served on the Board of Directors of the Academy of Geriatric Physical Therapy, she has served as the editor of the Journal of Geriatric Physical Therapy and as the chair of the Jerry Edge Task Force on Functional Assessment. So describe for me your education and initial interest in physical therapy. Well, um, I went to a small college in Pennsylvania undergrad, majoring in bio, thinking that I was going to go to medical school and really wanting to do that. And then met my husband, and decided I didn't want as many years yeah. <laughs> as medical school would take. And his best yeah. friend at school wanted to be a PT. So uh, Kevin talked to me about what PT was like and that kind of thing. And I said, oh, that sounds good. So I transferred um, into uh, to Downstate Medical Center um, as a junior. They just did junior and senior year. So I completed my bachelor's there and had some really outstanding faculty at the time. Um, and uh, Margie Kramer was one of our faculty, and she did PNF, and um, she had magic hands. And I said, I want to yeah. do this. Yeah. <laughs> so my interest in neuro sort of came from um, she did uh, neuro rehab. She taught in the neuro rehab component of the curriculum, and so that's where my interest came in. My my first job was in a children's center that was before mainstreaming. I'm that old, um, and. The, um, I was terrible uh, because I didn't understand families mm. and how they functioned. So I would work diligently on these wonderful home programs and then get aggravated when moms, who were often single moms because they had a child with a disability, couldn't integrate it into their already too busy lives. So um, we moved, uh, I graduated in 76. We moved in 77 to Connecticut because my husband had finished his graduate work. Um, and got a job in Connecticut, and I uh, started at Hartford Hospital, um, knowing that I was probably going to be a neuro nerd. And um, you know, it was an acute care hospital. We also, had, at the time, had an inpatient rehab, and we just had a cadre of of folks there that have gone on to really blossom and grow and contribute. Um, uh, Sherry Hayes was there with me. Linda Crane was there with me. Um, Linda was the first certified, spe- one of the first three certified specialists in the association. Um, Carolyn Kelly, who has been a um, recognized for her clinical education um, excellence, um, was there, and we just were we fed on each other. We were there were eleven. PTs there when I joined, and um, I was there for about four and a half, five years. And by the time I left, there were 35, and we got organized into a neuro team, an ortho team, 
um, a cardiopulmonary team. Mm -hmm. And so I had the opportunity to do inpatient um, acute stroke. I was, you know, the the neuro ICU was my second home, so worked a lot with folks with head injury and new spinal cord injury, brain tumor, that kind of stuff. Um, was able to spend some time on the, the inpatient neuro rehab floor um, and met some wonderful people who influenced the, their handling of their um, situations, influenced my dissertation topic when I went back to grad school. Um, and while I was at Hartford, I had the opportunity to help with continuing ed education programs. And we brought uh, Greg Johnson and Vicki Saliba from the Institute of Physical Art um, in to uh, do PNF courses. And um, they were such magnificent teachers. Um, and I learned so much from them. And uh, really, you know, after Margie with PNF and now Greg and Vicki with PNF, um, you have to remember this is in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. And um, so motor learning hadn't yet come in as a way of thinking about right. rehab. Um, but uh, their their manual skills were just so incredible. They noticed I was around every time they came to town. <laughs> so, so, and was that a coincidence? <laughs> so, um, I eventually was able to join them as a teaching assistant, and then eventually as an instructor. And that led to an opportunity to fill in for someone on sabbatic at University of Connecticut. So, um, and uh, the person that I filled in for. Uh, was taught the neuro rehab stuff. Um, and I just, as much as I loved patient care, being in the classroom was, it, I just, I knew that that was going to become sort of my niche. Did you ever see yourself there? Before not initially. No. Not initially, you know. Um, my son was born in the uh, early 1980s, and that's so how I, I started working part time, uh, you know, a couple days a week at the hospital. Um, also, picked up uh, private pay patients um, after who were post-stroke, got involved with a local stroke support group mm -hmm. and, um, you know, was treating um, in their homes. And um, this uh, one woman who had had a very severe stroke and, uh, you know, we've learned a lot about strokes since then. Again, you know, this is in the, the early 80s. Um, was, uh, she lived in a, um, she was very determined. She had significant right hemiplegia. She had aphasia that semi-resolved. Um, and uh, she lived in a very old house and had very old beds with the strings underneath them for support. Mm -hmm. And when we tried to exercise on the bed, her, her, her tone was horrible. So my job was to come in and help her exercise so we could manage her abnormal tone and we'd get on the bed to try to do exercise and roll into each other so I made her get up and down from the floor much to her chagrin until um, one day um, she kept the books for her um, husband's veterinary practice and uh, they had a big wooden rolling uh, roll top desk and she sat on a folding chair because she could bump it in and out easy, more easily uh -huh. um, she walked with a quad cane mostly because it didn't fall over. She could walk with a straight cane, but never stayed put so mm -hmm. when she sat down and stuff, so she wanted a quad cane. Um, she reached 
went to reach for the telephone and her bottom slid off the chair and she ended up in the cubby hole under the desk. And she, because we had been getting up and down from the floor, she took some time and did some problem solving and sort of fanny walked her way out from under the, de the cubby hole and um, rolled into the living room and over to the couch and got herself up. And she called me up and she said, Michelle, you won't believe what I just did. I got up all by myself. And that was a turning point for her. She had been a, a master gardener. Um, she had a beautiful rose garden. And because she knew she could get up, she went back out and dug in the garden. Um, she had been a, a good hands class uh, national champion in dressage and had horses. And she hadn't been up on her horse probably in three to four years. So her next goal was get me up on the horse. She got up on the horse. And we noticed when she got up on the horse, her gait improved. Be, you know, with the rhythm of the... So my... When I did decide um, to bring it back to UConn, when I did decide that I wanted to, to teach and had to go back to graduate school, did my master's um, in education and that it did a PhD in gerontology um, and family studies. Um, and uh, my dissertation topic was the relationship between fear of falling and risk of falling in community living folks. So... Her interaction <laughs> in the early 80s led to my PhD topic, and I think of her every day <laughs> um, and stuff. So I was at I was at UConn and was a TA, you know, was a fill-in for um, one of the faculty members who was finishing her dissertation um, and was on sabbatic. Uh, she extended her sabbatic a, a semester, so I stuck around another semester. And then um, they were in, in the middle of a, a faculty search and couldn't find anybody, so I got, you know, tags, I could say on another year. And uh, eventually um, we uh, decided to go back to school. And so I stayed on uh, as a lecturer, completed my master's, um, completed the PhD, um, and uh, was there almost 15 years, I think. Um, Got interested because uh, well, got involved in the in the APTA sections level activities because of a colleague at at, um, at UConn, Rita Wong, and uh, you know because she was very involved and she brought me to my first CSM and introduced me to lots of people and got me onto committees. And mm -hmm. She kept saying, "Michelle can do this for you." Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Rita. <laughs> uh, but um, through involvement with the sections um, really had opportunity to interact with folks who already were contributing a lot. Mm -hmm. So was able to sort of be mentored and ride on their coattails a bit. Um, and uh, it just uh, it kind of grew from there. Yeah. And, uh, um, got interested um, in problem-based learning and uh, UConn was a research one place, and problem-based learning is very time-intensive, so um, wasn't something that was ever going to happen at UConn. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, opportunity came to uh, be involved in new program development, mm -hmm. um, and so I interviewed at Marymount in uh, Arlington, Virginia, and knew that Mike was coming to Sacred Heart. Um, you know, knew of him, knew he was very charismatic. Uh, so went down an interview with him um, and uh, 
basically he made it happen and um, it was an incredibly creative time that we were the original group of us um, I think I was the fifth out of eight hired um, developed the curriculum from scratch mm-hmm. made lots of mistakes and had to correct them but uh, really enjoyed um, problem-based learning format and and of course I was the neuro nerd on the faculty and um, met Donna Bowers. I was going to say you, you and who Donna became the immediately, force of intervention. Uh, <laughs> we, we became immediate bosom buddies, basically. Yeah. And you know, when we when we team taught, I'd start a sentence, she'd finish it. Um, she was NDT trained. I still thought about PNF. Of course, by that time, you know, in, in preparing courses, you have to stay current in the literature. So. We had integrated motor learning, but we didn't let go of the manual stuff that we were doing. So she, we in, in lab, um, in the master's program, we team taught labs together. Um, and uh, so I would handle a patient using my skill set, and then she would handle the same patient using her skill set. Mm-hmm. And you know, it was it was really kind of neat to demonstrate that you can approach a problem in multiple ways and still have positive outcome. uh, I'm glad you brought up the problem learning because I had a question about that. Um, So in our our profession, previous knowledge is being challenged, you know, coming back to activity after concussion and now you have neuroplasticity, use it, don't lose it. Kind of looking at it from an education perspective, what do you think are some things that we're realizing in education? that perhaps we didn't think about earlier on? Well, you know, as, as there have been, there have been trends, you know, in the 60s and 70s, it was PNF and NDT and a little bit of Bobath and that kind of stuff. In the 80s, um, Karn Shepard started coming mm-hmm. through with their way of managing stroke. You know, so, so knowledge is sort of been building um, and, then, and sometimes what happens is the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. so when motor learning started to come up like you didn't touch your patients you did motor learning you you know and, and didn't do the man the facilitation that you might do if you were NDT trained or PNF trained that kind of thing um, so there was a rift um, about you know what approach was still viable mm-hmm. or most viable, um, and then more recently, there's been um, a building of saying integration of of, of things, and with plasticity, um, you know, motor learning and plasticity are so important, and and the sort of ask don't tell strategies when you when you you ask someone to do something, you know, and you and you say, well, you know, what do you think about what you just did how did that go and rather than saying well if you would put your foot here or your hand here you know rather than be being directive to to um sort of use a problem-based approach in in mm-hmm. you know think in that. Yeah, like do you think problem-based learning is like the neuroplasticity theme of education like is it where we're going because it seems to be working you know in some ways yes um the drawback for me anyway with problem-based learning is that my research productivity 
decreased somewhat. Mm-hmm. Of course, I was not known now at a teaching institution versus a research institution from UConn to Sacred Heart. <laughs> I used to get so frustrated at, at, at UConn because you'd work so hard on these grants, grant applications, and you'd get a review that was positive, but you didn't, you were ranked. And, you know, I was always the one that was just below just the one that got funded. Yeah. And it was perceived as a failure um, yeah. by the powers that be at the yeah. university. Um, and so I was very happy when it came to Sacred Heart that I didn't have, <laughs> you know. But I did do grant. I did, was awarded some grants as some some teaching grants as well as a couple of research grants at Sacred Heart. So I did, you know, I was able to incorporate it. But mm-hmm. the the thing at problem-based learning, because you spend so much time with students in collaborative learning rather than in traditional lecture format. Um, something has to go and so I did all my research in the summertime when I wasn't in the classroom so I you know and then I would try to sneak it in you know yeah I'd collect my data and stuff in the summertime and then try to get it (laughs) you know cleaned up and analyzed and then write you know write manuscripts and stuff um as I could during this during the semester um but you know and, and we transitioned from the master's program, I think, only ran for three or four years before we transitioned to DPT. Mm. So we did major curriculum development twice um, and, uh, while I was there. So, and so you're I, happy to be retired. <laughs> well, you know, I miss, I miss being in the classroom. Um, I always, I mean, my responsibility at Sacred Heart was, was the neuroanatomy piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we wrote cases, Donna and I wrote cases that that were aimed at being integrative across um, the anatomy piece, the uh, the way that Sacred Hearts curriculum was developed. There was basic science stuff, there was uh, assessment stuff, and then there was intervention stuff. And the cases were supposed to be an umbrella that stretched across all three. Mm-hmm. And um, took a lot of time and thinking on faculty to embed those clues in the in a one-page mm-hmm. paper case um but uh you and know to guide your tutorial leaders to right yeah. right oh, yeah. and and uh, and to you know every three or four years we would tutor ourselves to make sure that we didn't so that we understood the process mm-hmm. a bit um, and uh you know it was uh, interesting to let go of control the 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 th- you know, I'm I'm not. I've been retired almost eight years now, so I'm not as into the literature as I used to be. But um, I really am intrigued by uh, divided attention and dual task training uh, and that kind of thing from a falls prevention perspective. But that's neuro. I mean, neuro and geriatrics absolutely are abs- you know absolutely yeah. integrated that way. Um, and translational research. You know, so how do we take how do we take the stuff we're reading in journals? and make it accessible to clinicians who will then use the information that, mm-hmm. um, you know, that kind of thing. If I, if, if I had, I mean, my PhD in geriatrics was wonderful. I had some, some very good mentors um, in graduate school. They were not PTs. They were social scientists, um, mostly. Uh, but uh, if, if my... I really was, at the time I started my degrees, I was very interested in motor learning and would have loved to go gone down to NYU and work with Ann Gentile and, and the mm-hmm. whole bit. But 
we lived too far away. I had a young, you know, young child. Right. So, you know, yeah. But, you know, I'm I'm pretty proud of my body of work. I, I think <laughs> you're like segueing so perfectly into my next question. So, the determining risk of falls in community dwelling older adults. The article that you did with Dr. Shuey. Uh huh. Um, up until then, there had been no reviews that provided measure-to-measure comparison of predictive properties for tools used to assess fall risk. Can you share some of your highlights working with the nine other authors of that Well, um, we were charged by the section and supported financially by the section and by the APTA um, to do some legwork that would prepare for a clinical practice guideline um, in uh, fall prevention. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so we had a team uh, of at any one time, ten people, nine or ten people, the team changed a little bit over the thing. And we thought it would take us about a year to do the systematic review. Boy, were we long. <laughs> um, we got into the literature and we discovered that, as a group, PTs were using more than 70 different tools to um, assess risk of falling. And so, through our uh, article selection and screening process, we pulled out articles that had information about um, sensitivity and specificity um, and did lots and lots of math to um, develop, uh, use the idea of pre and post test probability, um, which is not something, folks in medicine do it all the time, but not something that PTs, Mm -hmm. at least in geriatrics and neuro, routinely do. so we pulled out articles. We found as many articles as we could for for um, commonly used in- instruments, um, and did the math to combine using sensitivity and specificity to develop, you know, go through likelihood ratios and odds ratios and down to post-test probability, so that a therapist could say, okay, if someone is walking at less than 1.0 meters per second, their fall risk goes from a 1 in 3 to 45 or 48%. We found that no single um, of of the articles where the evidence existed, um, no single measure got up close. But in looking at the medical literature and how they used post-test probability, we found... um, that uh, you could not add, but mathematically um, use one test post-test probability as the next test pre-test probability. So that if someone failed, you know, if you were if you chose to do a set of three or four assessments, um, you know, you could you could say, okay, now I know if they if they've if they're under the cut score for. Um, and therefore have a positive test for, th- for three of my measures, mm-hmm. now I'm confident that this person's risk is actually maybe 75%. Um, so we're trying to, we're hoping that this is helping, has the potential to help to change practice. And Abs- so in the, the acute care setting, it's, this is huge for us, is being able to justify right. people staying, people getting outpatient. Like yeah, The problem has... is that most of the articles I looked at were set in community. Yeah. So this needs to be, there need to be studies in different settings. Mm-hmm. Um, I just finished working on a, a consulting project for a, a large home care agency looking at their fall prevention protocol. And 
out of that, we're hoping it hasn't quite been implemented yet. It took about six months to develop, and we, we, we sort of did train the trainers kind of thing. Um, we're hoping that uh, we will have a data set about a year and a half from now of over 10,000 people who are receiving home care that we can stratify by gender and decade of age over 65 to close to 100 and um, also diagnosis you know because total joint folks are very different than other home care folks so um, to have just like we have norms for community developing folks to have some some norms for folks who are receiving PT in the home after hospitalization so we shall see so my fingers are still in there (laughs) you never thought you were actually going to be retired did you? (laughs) well you know, what's nice now is that I get to, to structure my own time mm-hmm. and um, choose what I want to work on, yeah. you know. And I miss the classroom. <laughs> I don't miss the work of the classroom, yeah. but I miss being in the classroom. Um, yeah. But So, you know, and I'm doing um, pro bono work in my neighborhood. I'm doing prehab for folks who are going to go to total, have to, total joint replacements and stuff. And um, oftentimes I'm called upon by neighbors and friends if, if uh, they're coming home from a hospital, you know, to be at the house to make sure they can get in safe and get up and down off their, their, uh, their toilet in and out of their bed, you know, in and out of their favorite chair. Um, so, you know, my fingers are still in. Um, you know, I, I don't, um, I did home care after I retired. I, when I made the decision and retired, I actually did a transitional DPT so that um, I could hone up the skills that I've let go mm-hmm. in, in terms of um, the other aspects of PT other than neuro and Jerry. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, uh, completed that and then did home care for about two and a half years part-time and before we moved to South Carolina. So. To enjoy the sunshine. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. But, and it's also nice now. I, some of my time is spent... Um, Working with a, a number of uh, nonprofits in the area who are doing service-oriented work, and mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of poverty uh, in, you know, in the woods in South Carolina. Yeah, <laughs> there's Some underserved. Yeah. Oh, very much so, very much so. So, um, yeah, still trying to contribute. I think that the transition to retirement for me first year was like I'm free um, but after that I really said you know so why what do I what am I going to do with the rest of my life how can I still make kind of bloom where I'm planted and make difference mm-hmm. to quality of life for folks yeah, that's such a core value in PT that um, it can get lost when you are worried about being in a hospital or being in a yeah. outpatient yeah. it kind of gets lost yeah so so that's sort of me in a nutshell yeah. these days. <laughs> so, are there any other questions that I do have a couple, but I have a feeling they're going to end up yeah, being. I have no idea what time.